Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I'm here today with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. And as always, there is a lot to talk about today. Hmm. Michelle, wow, where do we even begin? Should we begin with Saudi Arabia? Uh, sure. Yeah, John, guess who's going to Saudi Arabia? Yeah, when I Jinping. saw it, I, I just shook my head. Xi Jinping. Mm-hmm. What a totally logical thing to do at the most opportune time. Yeah. Precisely. Um, And, you know, of course, and probably the least consequential, but not totally inconsequential aspect of this will be, I mean, I think everyone would bet that the Saudis are going to really lay on the pomp and circumstance to demonstrate, you know, how they receive a political figure they respect in contrast to what we saw with Joe Biden's visit there, which of course was a snub, not only in, in terms of protocol, but in terms of actual productivity of the visit, yeah. right? Because yeah, he walked right. away getting uh, l- less than even what people had expected would be standard that's right. from the next uh, production increase by OPEC+. Plus. So, yeah, we're going to talk about that. Uh, John, you remember like a year ago when all of a sudden there were a lot of questions about the the Saudi and Chinese relationship when it comes to nuclear technology? Oh, Yes. So I'm curious whether this will come up at all. Uh, probably, I mean, I don't think either side probably wants to talk about that very much, but both sides are going to have points uh, to make. And so it'll be interesting. And, and I think important to watch, right? Because oh, yeah. we, if, it, if definitely. China is really going to be the U.S.'s major rival, as we know it already is, uh, you know, a lot of our a lot of our power relationships are there in the Middle East. We rely on those relationships a lot. And uh, if if China can really demonstrate that it's going to be a better partner, that that's, is that's going to be tough for the United States. You know, one of the things that was that was made crystal clear to me when I first joined the CIA and I, I didn't get this from the CIA because they don't necessarily care, but I got it from the State Department is that the Middle East is ours, period. And um when I was assigned to the U.S. Embassy in, in Bahrain, of course, it was in the midst of this period of hope that there would be some sort of a peace agreement between the Arabs and the Israelis. And I was a delegate to the Arab-Israeli peace talks on the environment. So my instructions formally were to um, get together with my Russian counterpart, still remember his name, and we would go together to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and formally invite the, the Bahrainis to attend the peace talks. At the last minute, and I mean like an hour before I was going to leave the embassy to go to the Russian embassy to pick him up, I was instructed to um, to just uh, ignore him, just to skip it. And so uh, I, I you know, had to follow my instructions. I went to the foreign ministry by myself, and then he called me screaming, swearing. How could you do this to me? I thought we were friends. And I said, man, I'm sorry, but these were my instructions. The instructions are to keep the Russians and the Chinese out because the Middle East is ours. And so this is going to present a challenge. This visit by Xi Jinping, this is going to be a challenge to policymakers uh, at the uh, State Department because you can't force other countries to only ally with you and to do what you tell them to do. That's not realpolitik. That's not I the mean, way the world works. You can. 
but only for so long and only That's under right. certain circumstances, that right? I right. think the U.S. has been doing that for some time and uh, is finding it's it's more difficult now. Speaking of challenges, also, you know, we're going to talk about why it was such a big deal that a Chinese naval ship this morning docked in Sri Lanka right, finally. Uh, against the wishes of not just the United States, but but India. And I think there's an interesting conversation to have, too. You know, we, we talk a lot about the— um, you know, the, the hypocrisy and sort of comedy of the United States pretending that it owns the entire world and so that any activity anywhere on the planet is somehow happening in the U.S. backyard. But, you know, India's objections to this, at least one of them, was this is close enough for Chinese to spy on us, right? Yeah, and then right. there's been some conversation about the reaction of ASEAN countries to China's um, military drills around Taiwan. And so it's one thing for the United States to go, this is a this is a provocation right next to right. our whatever chunk yeah. of the Pacific. Um, but there is going to be, I think, some some negotiation that's going to have to happen uh, w- with China's actual neighbors as it continues to yeah. develop its military presence and and challenge the United States. But in their back backyards, you know, you know, one of the things that the United States forgets, uh, and, and I say that rhetorically, of course, is that. Um, China and India border one another, and uh, they have a long history of border tensions. Uh, the the Chinese, you know, the, the reason I've been following this Chinese ship thing uh, vis-a-vis Sri Lanka, the reason the Chinese want to dock this ship is to buy food, right? They need supplies. They need to refuel, and they need to buy supplies. And the Sri Lankans are more than happy to supply the ship because they're a failed economic state and they need the money. And then you've got the Americans and the Indians all over their backs to try to get them to just walk away from it. It's not fair. Yeah. Yeah. And India in particular is seeing this as a, um, a real slap in the face. Oh yeah. So that'll be interesting to talk about. We also of course have more of Donald Trump's legal dramas, um, mm-hmm. both the ongoing ones over, uh, alleged financial crimes at Trump organization. Uh, we have their longtime CFO apparently preparing to take a plea deal. Um, but we also have more news about whatever it is exactly that the justice department is investigating, um, that led to this raid on Mar-a-Lago, uh, Trump, just as we were leaving yesterday, put out that statement about his passports being taken, which some news organizations poo pooed, but turned out to be correct. Yeah. Uh, DOJ gave them back. Um, but there is now this fight over over the actual affidavit uh, that, you know, w- was the foundation for this for this raid. And, you know, whether or not the, the DOJ doesn't want to make that public, presumably because it would uh, make it more clear what exactly they are looking into. Um, Trump would have you believe that he wants all that to be public. So we're going to talk about what what all that means. Yes. Uh, a couple of points there. Uh, first of all, taking the passport is is highly unusual. Um, I I have a, a stack of of expired passports, diplomatic passports that I've saved as souvenirs from my career because I've been to so many countries. The the feds when they raided my house, they took those the expired ones and they let me keep my actual passport. Um, so for them to take Donald Trump's passport with the implication being they're afraid he's going to run away to another country. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And I mean, highly they gave unusual. it back. Yeah. And they gave it back. Um, a couple of other points, too. Uh, 
It's the Justice Department, as you noted, that does not want this affidavit out. They say that it would compromise future investigations. I think what they're not telling us, too, is that it's so chock full of classified information (laughs) (laughs) that they don't want to risk, you know, improperly redacting it and releasing it. So there are a whole bunch of lawsuits pending right now by news outlets, you know, from the left, the right and the center. And uh, eventually a judge is going to have to make this decision, but it's coming up. You know, there's one other point, too. Uh, So many of of the uh, stories that we're seeing about Donald Trump's legal travails uh, focus on this federal case. He still has this tax case in New York. And um, it seems that Alan um, uh, Weisselberg who was the longtime CFO of the Trump organization, is changing his plea from not guilty to guilty. Uh, He's not supposed to go to trial for another couple of months, but both sides asked the court to schedule a hearing day after tomorrow, which means a change of plea. One of the, the most interesting parts of this to me, though, is a report in today's New York Times. They're the ones who broke the story, saying that uh, Weisselberg... um, has steadfastly refused to cooperate that he yeah, and part will of this deal not. Yeah. Is he's not, he's not giving up anything about Trump. No, he refuses. And also, he's the deal is it's according to CBS or which is where I saw this, right? It's, it's a deal for five months in jail. Right. He's not going to give up any information about, about Donald Trump. And it's about a uh, tax evasion on $1.7 million of income. Correct. That apparently came in the form of perks. Yes, so it could be rent. You know, and look, hey man, $2.2 million is a lot of money to me. I'll but say. it is, I, I will be very curious to talk uh, with our guests later in the show about what we are to make of this investigation, at least in, in, in this man, right? Who's not the same as Trump organization. We haven't seen that Trump organization has, um, made any kind of plea deal. So we'll, we'll see what that means. But this dude who was by Trump's side for decades, decades is going down without giving up any information on the organization and for tax evasion on less than $2 million. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the funny part too, not funny, haha, but funny, sad is, uh, he faced 15 years in prison and the New York times is speculating, as you said, uh, five months minus time served He's going to do about a hundred days in a minimum security work camp. Yeah, that's a pretty sweet deal. If so, you, if you don't have to turn rat, that's I mean, a if, pretty sweet deal. If this is sort of what they, I mean, who knows? Maybe this means they have everything they need on Trump organization without the the cooperation of the CFO. Yeah, or you know, this is the level of crime we're looking at. I I'm surprised there isn't more. Yeah, I, I am too. Very surprised there isn't more. Like all this for a hundred days in jail, all yeah. the, the millions of dollars of taxpayer money that was expended investigating and prosecuting yeah. for, for, for a minor outcome like this, you know, the, the, the New York state does this all the time, especially the, the New York district attorney where they'll round up 20 or 30 alleged mafia figures and they'll charge them with a hundred different Rico predicates. And it's on the front page of all the New York papers and then six months later, very quietly at the back of the newspaper, it'll say they all took a plea to illegal gambling and they got 60 days. They do this all the time. There was another story in the New York Times today about um, pandemic fraud, 
and how, you mm-hmm. know, they're, they're hunt, the government's hunting down pandemic fraud. They're, they're looking yeah, into people who that. stole unemployment benefits and, you know, uh, people who misused those PPP loans, whatever. Right. Um, they, they, are, I mean, it is sort of funny. Like there was just, just comically little oversight of this program. Oh, right. Yes. And part of this is what happens when you don't staff any of these agencies that are suddenly tasked with overseeing these massive programs and these massive, um, disbursements, yeah. you know, I think it's the same the same sort of reason that we saw such long lines, such long waits for people to get the benefits that they actually deserved mm-hmm. are why this money had to go out, uh, you know, without anybody to watch it. And also because, you know, the government chose not to give more money directly to people. But to do this loan thing to make sure we could give lots of money to supposed business owners and job creators yeah. and less just directly to individuals, right? right. And of course, there was always going to be, you know, there's always going to be fraud, right? Someone's always, always going to try and come and, and steal something. Um, but I do think, I think it is interesting. Uh, the story notes that the Justice Department has charged people with about $1 billion in fraud so far. It's investigating other cases of about $6 billion more. And an uh, uh, expert that the Times chose to quote said, would it surprise me if there was $100 billion, if it exceeded $100 billion in fraud? No. Nowhere in this story is mentioned, by way of context, the Federal Reserve and the trillions of dollars every month that was pumped in to the stock market to yeah. maintain the liquidity of the only people in the country who matter. And so what I am really worried about is that, you know, sure, fi- find the people who were, who, you know, took an $80,000 loan and, and bought a Mickey Mantle card with it or whatever. <laughs> right. You know, someone bought a Pokemon card, like I uh, whatever. Saw that. Sure, and a Lamborghini. Hunt down like the biggest people committing the worst fraud. Cause that does make it hard for people to get their legitimate mm-hmm. benefits. But if the story of the pandemic becomes about how, you know, the government shouldn't give people money in times of need because some bad people will steal it. And we're all just supposed to look away from the situation that the Federal Reserve created because no amount of money was too much to ensure that Wall Street didn't feel, you know, any more than a fraction of pain anybody else was feeling. Man, that is going to be that's going to be so sad. And it's going to just further warp our understanding of who, you know, what are the real crimes happening in the United States right now? And who are the real financial criminals? Isn't that the truth? I've got a couple of friends who run their own businesses. My best friend from high school being one of them. He has 14 employees and um, he was considering taking one of these loans when COVID first um, uh, first broke out. And um, he said that when he went to the bank, he went to Wells Fargo and they just wouldn't deal with him. So he went to this little bank. And they said, sure, sure, we'll give you the money. And he said when he when he read all of the financial documents that were required, that this program had fraud written all over it, that there was just no oversight at all. And so he walked away and he went out of pocket to continue paying that paying his people. And he's so glad he did, because now everybody's under investigation. Everybody has to provide financial documents and, you know, prove that you didn't use the money to buy a Pokemon card or a Lamborghini, which has happened. Sure. Nothing but trouble. So yeah. poorly managed. Yeah. Should have just know. given more money to people directly. Yeah, that's that what it been, is. That would have been the way to do it. Oh, well, hey, well, there's more to talk about, but I want to save it for later in the show because I know we have our next guest on the line. And I want to get into this trip to Saudi Arabia by Xi Jinping and some of the other news about China 
So I think we'll take a quick break here, John, and uh, and come back on Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be back in just one sec. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are, as we said, getting ready to talk about some moves that China is making in the world and how people are reacting to them. We're going to talk about Xi Jinping's uh, reported trip to Saudi Arabia that, as far as I can see, hasn't been confirmed yet, but could happen as soon as this week. We are going to talk about the Chinese Navy uh, docking a ship in Sri Lanka. We are going to talk about this really underreported trip by a delegation of 30 Muslim-majority countries to uh, China's Xinjiang area and uh, why we're not hearing very much about uh, what those people saw. We're going to talk about the response from neighboring countries to China's drills around Taiwan. We're going to get into a lot. And joining us from this conversation is Cynthia Chung, She's president and co-founder of the Rising Tide Foundation, and she's a writer for the Strategic Culture Foundation. Thanks for joining us again, Cynthia. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about this trip of Xi Jinping to Saudi Arabia, which, as I said, I don't know if it's been confirmed since a couple hours ago when I was looking at it this morning, um, but could happen this week. Of course, uh, the red carpet treatment that she will likely get is going to deepen the snub that Joe Biden got on every level during his visit. And a Politico story that was writing about this trip said China's aim here is to show that it is actually a better and more reliable partner for the Middle East than the U.S. And Saudi Arabia is going to be aiming to show that, hey, look, United States, there are ready and willing alternatives uh, to your investment money, to your arms sales, and maybe, you know, don't don't count on these relationships as uh, as unchangeable. There are alternatives in the world to you. And so I wonder, I wonder, Cynthia, what you think people should be watching on this trip and, you know, the, the different messages that China and Saudi Arabia are going to try to convey. Um, well, you know, Saudi Arabia um, is very similar to the UAE right now, where they're they're not stupid and they they understand that american foreign policy with anything concerning the middle east is uh, you know america first and and it doesn't really matter the long term um future for any of these countries and um even though saudi arabia is a major oil producer it knows that it needs to diversify its economy just as uae understands this and um they need to increase their infrastructure and their their uh, the number of scientists that they have for the kinds of salute uh, problems they're going to be facing in the future, uh, especially you know with water shortage um, concerns with uh, uh, food production and things like this. And so UAE and Saudi Arabia have clearly um, tried to you know get further into that kind of uh, development and not just be a, a raw resource producer, which. Um, anyone knows is a very volatile situation to be in. Um, so what China is offering for uh, these countries is, I mean, it's it's competition um, uh, for certain, but it's an it's an actual feasible, um, you know, extension of 
partnership, like genuine partnership um, in terms of economic development. And what, how China benefits from this is uh, not only are they also, you know, benefiting through profit, but you want to have the countries around your country to be stable and secure countries. And so it makes sense to want to have very good relationships with these countries, not in any way to be antagonistic to the United States, but rather for just uh, security reasons. And Saudi Arabia has also uh, recently become a dialogue partner with the Shanghai Cooperation. They've become very close with Russia as well. And um, it's very clear, like the what the U.S. has done in terms of how it's decided to sanction Russia, uh, for instance, with the the Ukraine situation, has caused a lot of countries around the world a lot of problems. It's thrown the world into an energy crisis that was already there, but it it like it really um, blew it up. And uh, so, why would these countries not want to have uh, you know energy deals with that have like a stable future for them rather than the war games that the United States is uh, very transparently playing right now. So it's, it sounds like from what you're saying, uh, people are sort of watching this economic relationship, but it sounds like uh, as important is going to be the development of this political relationship. As you say, with both sides interested in stability, with increasing cooperation and in some of these uh, regional multilateral organizations. Uh, so should we actually be watching for a closer political relationship development between these countries? Well, yeah, of, of course, there's going to be a, a closer political um, relationship between these countries because you, you want to have, you know, a good diplomatic relationship in order to have collaboration. And um, again, I, I, I'm, I'm really seeing that uh, a lot of countries are, are waking up to the fact that they're not going to benefit any uh, longer from um, going along with what has increasingly become a kind of bullying from American foreign policy, and that it's they're better off taking the risk to not go along with that and to dare to have partnerships with countries like Russia and China. Do you think we'll hear any more about uh, nuclear cooperation between these two countries? I I feel like it was about a year ago. Um, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, a couple other uh, places, suddenly we're speculating um, about this, the nature of this cooperation and whether, you know, Saudi Arabia would be trying to get some, some kind of technology that they shouldn't from China. Do you, do you think we'll hear any more about this? Um, there's, there's probably going to be um, encouragement for that sort of thing. And I mean, again, UAE, um, they have their first nuclear power plant. It's, uh, it's the first in the Arabian Peninsula, the second in the, the Persian Gulf region, and uh, the first commercial nuclear plant in the uh, Arab world. So it was a, a major accomplishment, um, and it I think it has only started to be operational in 2021. And um, again, like, why shouldn't these countries have access to nuclear power plants, which it which again will play a big role in terms of um, you know uh, having uh, an, an ability to to I mean to 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 develop their economies, but also it will play a role in like how they're going to have access to water and, and things like this as well with the desalination plants. Also, talk about this uh, this much ballyhooed trip by a Chinese naval ship uh, to Sri Lanka. 
a Chinese naval ship docked in Sri Lanka today, much to the consternation of the United States, but especially India. And an MSN story on this uh, subject said, Indian and U.S. officials had raised concerns about the political optics of a Chinese Navy vessel docking at the uh, Hambantota International Port. Uh, I guess the political optics are that it makes India look bad, because India has been saying, uh, or the story notes that India gave Sri Lanka $4 billion in financial assistance over the past year, and the day before the ship docked, gave Sri Lanka two surveillance planes and kept, I guess, saying, hey, please don't let the Chinese ship dock there. Why Why was this such a huge deal? Um, well, I mean, the uh, the relations between China and India um, have been strained, and, and there's a, a long history with that. Um, I think that India is... Um, becoming less beholden again to uh, what the United States is is preferring that they do in terms of their relationship with, with Russia. But the relationship, unfortunately, is still strained with China. In terms of China's relationship with Sri Lanka, they have been doing a lot to uh, invest in Sri Lanka. And, um, you know, the, the whole debt crisis thing, um, as I brought up in, a, in another uh, talk with you guys, uh, China has only uh, 10% of, uh, you know, of that debt beholden to them. And uh, the rest of it is really through uh, IMF type uh, conditionalities and uh, and uh, and so forth. And then the, this explosion that's going on in Sri Lanka, again, is connected um, largely to the volatility of the energy crisis that has been caused again through the U.S. sanctions with with Russia, and there seems to be evidence that there's NED operations in in Sri Lanka. So I don't know the details exactly of uh, what uh, China is is doing in Sri Lanka and what their plans are, but um, I think that China is uh, definitely uh, showing that it is going to start taking further and further control over um, these Asian. Um, situation in terms of interfering, I think, with where uh, what have been primarily regions where the United States has been interfering in. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, India also um, was saying that it was worried the Chinese ship could spy on them from that port. Right. And so I was saying to John earlier, right, it, it's silly when the United States pretends that anything a country does basically in its own waters is a threat to the United States. But, you know, with with this trip and also with, um, you know, the the uh, military drills that China conducted following Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, you know, there are regional neighbors there who might feel one way or another about having these massive war games happen much, much closer to them than, you know, they are to the United States, right? And so I wanted to ask about, you know, the reaction to uh, these drills by um, ASEAN countries, Southeast Asian countries who might be sympathetic to China's um, irritation at, at Pelosi's provocation, but also who have to deal uh, with these things happening actually in much closer proximity. I wonder what kind of negotiations are underway or going to need to be underway as China does expand its uh, its military presence and develop its military power, because we really focus on um, meeting the challenge that the United States presents. But there are a lot of other countries in, in that neighborhood who are watching what goes on and who do have a stake in what happens uh, around their shores. 
Yeah, I, I don't think that any of the countries um, in that region, including China, want to see war. But uh, unfortunately, the situation with um, the United States is that it very much looks like they want to have a proxy war using Taiwan as a, a sort of battering ram. And uh, the Chinese military exercises around Taiwan are, you know, Taiwan is, again, it's a part of China. It is a, a part of the country of China, and the military exercises were in Chinese waters. Um, and basically, you know, there's a lot of uh, criticism that China didn't react harshly enough to the clear provocation of Pelosi's trip. But what these military exercises um, have showcased, um, because these are not things that can be organized within a short amount of time, it basically was something that had been planned for a long time. And it was uh, uh, Pelosi's visit was a, a very good reason for China to uh, to launch these military exercises to show that they are fully uh, prepared to um, defend uh, China. And uh the, the thing, too, with the ASEAN countries, they're staying out of it and and they should because I, I mean, they, they, they I mean, they're being kind of neutral in their speaking. It was like that, too, for many countries when Russia entered Ukraine. They didn't want to, um, you know, get involved. But at the end of the day, uh, it's it's the actions that that matter. And China's trade with these countries is uh, incredibly important and and beneficial to these countries. Of course, they don't want to announce that they're not going to support American uh, foreign policy because there are there are so many forms of punishment for that. So it's best to try to stay out of it as much as possible. But um you know, China is making it very clear that um, they're not going to tolerate um, any kind of um, fooling around with Taiwan. And the United States doesn't look like it's going to be successful in, you know, getting China to take the bait, so to speak. And uh, this whole thing, too, with Quad, you know, Australia, Japan, uh, India, it doesn't look like these countries are going to be um, going along with that either. Australia has made it very clear uh, themselves that they're they're not for um, going into an unprovoked war. And Americans, again, should realize that Pelosi's trip cost about $90 million, it's estimated. Um, so again, with all of the problems happening uh, within the United States in terms of the economic hardship, people should really be asking what, what are the actual priorities that are going on right now that that kind of money can be spent. And Pelosi most certainly did uh, behind the door, you know, deals there to benefit her own her own pockets. Yeah, there was um, some speculation about her son being uh, an unnamed member of that party. Her son also having a bunch of uh, interests in different kinds of mining. I didn't see the confirmation of these stories, but I saw them floating around that, you know, people people who were on this trip might have been on not just for sightseeing, but for the opportunity to shake some hands and meet some influential people. Yeah, and at the end of the day, she didn't make any promises, actual promises to to Taiwan in terms of like policy or commitment or no, anything. No, how could she? So, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, I want to ask also about this story that, that didn't get a ton of attention in the West. Um, it happened last week, I believe. It's a visit by 32 envoys and senior diplomats from 30 Muslim majority countries to China's Xinjiang region, where much of its Uyghur population lives. 
Xinjiang is where Western countries like to say repression amounting to genocide is occurring among China's Uyghurs. And of course, you know, these several dozen um, envoys were on an official visit with all of the expected official, you know, itinerary and artifice. And so no one would have expected these delegates to uncover anything that didn't make China look good. But I do think it is worth noting here again how little we hear from Muslim majority countries about what is or is not happening to China's Uyghur population, right? The, this um, de declaration uh, from, I think it was 2019, I can't remember the date now, um, where a, a bunch of mostly European, definitely all Western countries came together to sign some kind of declaration condemning China for its, um, for its behavior. None of these are Muslim majority countries who you would presume are concerned about the fates of their co-religionists. And so I wonder if you could talk to us about, about this visit and about the fact that you just can't read anything about it. It's a very, I think I saw two news organizations actually covering it at all. Yeah, no, it's a it, that, that this uh, per, in particular is a very strong, um, you know, uh, support that what China is actually doing in Xinjiang is what, in fact, they're saying that they're doing. And that this is going to be a lot harder because, you know, Michelle Bachelet from the United Nations also did a recent visit and um, she also reported that she saw no evidence of um, any of the you know, criminal acts that China has been accused of in Xinjiang. And of course, you know, whenever any of this sort of thing happens, they're accused of just being beholden to, to China. The thing is, uh, for people to understand, there, there, are, there was a very serious terrorist problem to the point that the BBC News had also extensively reported on it years ago. It's kind of, again, similar to Ukraine, where you know, you had uh, extremist activity in Ukraine uh, concerning uh, neo-Nazi type uh, ideology, and uh, all of the Western press was talking about it until, you know, like a few months ago, and then there was kind of a denial that there was ever a problem. And uh, it's sort of the same thing with Xinjiang, where you had uh, radicalized, um, you know, Islamic uh, terrorist uh, activities that were going on, and they were attacking Chinese people and also uh, other uh, people within the Xinjiang region. Um, they're, you know, so so-called own people, um, and uh, China had to clamp down on this. And you know, Turkey was uh, also connected with this kind of uh, radicalization of the people in this area. It was a very serious problem in Xinjiang. You know, it borders. Uh, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, uh, and uh, Mongolia, and uh, Afghanistan. So it's a very uh, strategic uh, location that uh, was very purposefully being fueled. And again, surprise, surprise, the NED is a part of this. And they, the NED has been directly implicated in trying to uh, cause a, a separatist movement in Xinjiang. And uh, it's only the separatists and NED who call it the East Turkestan uh, region. So China had to, uh, and you can get this on the NED site through the, the, the funding. It's, it's, it's there for anyone to verify. The World Uyghur Congress is uh, an NED uh, affiliate. All of these um, groupings that are uh, like the 
main accusers of China for committing genocide in Xinjiang are all uh, directly tied to U.S. government funding. So again, how you bring up that you have these 30, uh, you know, Muslim groups that visit Xinjiang, that's really, you know, what should matter the most. And as you see, there's no reporting going on uh, with this. Um, so I think that this is a, a very clear indication that um, China is doing what it's saying and had to re-educate um, the people who have been radicalized into terrorist activity. And again, Xinjiang, uh, China is focusing on economic development within Xinjiang as well, because it's understood if you live in an impoverished region where you don't have a lot of opportunities, radicalization is much more likely to occur. So this is the this is the solution, the long term solution China is doing, which is, I think, the most humane thing rather than just putting people in prison. With the U.S. funding separatist movements? Never. <laughs> that was Cynthia Chung. Cynthia, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, do you want to tell our listeners where they can find more of your work? Uh, sure. Uh, I'm a writer with uh, the Strategic Culture Foundation. Um, I also am the president of the Rising Tide Foundation, and I have a substack through a glass darkly. Thanks so much for joining us, Cynthia. I'm sure we will talk to you again soon. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back in just a second. Still live in D.C., still on Radio Sputnik. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Federal and state prison systems remain in a state of chaos. Despite promises of reform at the start of the Biden administration, in Georgia, over the past 18 months, get this, an astounding 195 prison guards have been arrested for job-related crimes, including smuggling drugs and cell phones into the facilities, having sex with prisoners, beating handcuffed prisoners, and gang-related activities. And a prison warden in Nevada was forced to resign this summer after a local television station learned that he had covered up news of a riot in the prison two months earlier. In the meantime, the director of the Federal Bureau of Prisons recently resigned. We're joined by Paul Wright, He's executive director of the Human Rights Defense Center and managing editor of Prison Legal News and Criminal Legal News magazines. Welcome back, Paul. Thanks for having me on the show, John. Always a pleasure, Paul. Uh, We've seen a lot in the news lately about violence and corruption in prisoners. Here in the D.C. area, we get news about the Baltimore jail. It's in a state of chaos. Uh, You know that, that old saying that the inmates run the asylum? That's Baltimore. Uh, We hear similar stories in Rikers Island in New York. Now the entire Georgia prison system seems to be on trial. Is this something new or is it just that there is more reporting about it? I'm not sure that it's either one. I think uh, as someone who's been covering and reporting on these issues for 32 years, it's pretty much been going on the whole time in criminal justice news coverage. And it seems to go through kind of ups and downs um, in terms of, you know, as I would characterize our nation's prisons and jails as cesspools of brutality and corruption and yeah. neglect. And for the most part, they're stewing and rotting, you know, kind of outside of the public 
eye, and then periodically things kind of erupt that you know they can't keep under under cover anymore. But like when you mentioned the thing about you know all the arrests in in the Georgia prison system, this is happening kind of on a national basis, um, you know, around around the country. But it's almost kind of like the drip, drip, drip of the faucet. A lot of people may not notice the leaky faucet in the kitchen, but after a while, it adds up. It's a difference from, you know, you're um, a pipe breaking and your living room is flooded. Mm-hmm. This is just a steady drip of corruption and brutality. One of the things that, that is really um, kind of off the charts, though, are the number of deaths that are happening in, in prisons and jails. Um, in Alabama, for example, over 40 prisoners have died so far this year. And Oh, my God. Um, Georgia also has a remarkably high um, death rate. Florida has been averaging around 400 deaths a year. Before they privatized their medical care system in 2014, Florida averaged around 35 to 40. So you've seen a tenfold increase in the number of deaths just in the time period since, uh, since they privatized um, their health care. Around the country, this is also being exacerbated by by a lot of things. I think you've got decades of neglect by legislators and the governor's office. And some of the things that seem to also be driving this is everyone talks about the problems finding employees and hiring people for businesses and work. And this is actually playing out pretty dramatically in prisons and jails where um, the guard vacancies, uh, the number of guards yeah. they're supposed to have versus the ones they actually have, are running anywhere from 35 to 40 to 50 percent, and and these guard vacancies are actually pretty, um, you know, pretty big problems because for one thing, it means that guards that remain are often having to pull uh, mandatory overtime. They're pulling double shifts and aren't getting any time off. And and I would say that it's fair to say that uh, a lot of the problems. Not all of them, but a lot of the problems that are you can attribute to prisons and jails, especially related to violence, um, you can attribute to a lack of staffing. I mean, the reason mm-hmm. staff are supposed to be there is to supervise the prisoners. Like when you said that, you know, you've got a situation of the inmates running the asylum. Well, if there's no guards to to work in the asylum, the power vacuum and the default is then it turn then it reverts back to the prisoners, which usually isn't a very good idea. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And we're, and we're seeing that, you know, you can pretty much open the paper any random day of the week and see exactly what you've just described. Uh, the Bureau of Prisons named a new director two weeks ago uh, by the name of Colette Peters. I believe she's the first woman ever to head the Bureau of Prisons. She was most recently the director of corrections in Oregon. Michael Carvajal, the previous BOP director, was a disaster. And the organization's morale and press coverage worsened on his watch. Reason Magazine has an article on the end of the Carvajal tenure. Uh, They published it about two weeks ago and the beginning of Peters' tenure, saying that Peters can't run away from the BOP's problems like Carvajal did. Uh, Do you think that it's even possible, Paul, to reform the Bureau of Prisons or are they just too too far gone? I think that part of the problem is when you talk about prison reform and that. The biggest thing has been a lack of will. And the other thing, yeah. you know, the directors, um, sadly, the directors in these uh, large prison agencies, they don't last that long. And, and everyone in the agency knows that they figure realistically, even if someone comes in with uh, big reform plans or intentions, 
Um, they're probably not going to get too far with them because, hey, they're going to be, um, you know, they're going to be out of there um, within, you know, within two to three years. Also, in the middle of the Biden administration, there's going to be an election in the event that um, Trump or someone else comes in as president. Chances are they're going to appoint their their own uh, Bureau of Prisons director. One of the things that's unusual about, about Peters, I believe. She's not the first woman. Kathleen Hawk Stoyer was the former director of the Bureau of Prisons in the 90s, and she came back kind of like as kind of an old tire retread here uh, a few years ago. Um, but I believe this is the first outsider who hasn't come up through the ranks at the right to run the Bureau of Prisons. I think, on the one hand, some people attribute significance to that, but in the reality, I don't. And usually, I think that the big thing that happens, I think, in these big prison bureaucracies is the person who's nominally the head of the agency isn't really the person running it. Usually it's the second layer of people, the ones who have been there all the time, yeah. decades of their whole career. And I think it's like this in all bureaucracies. And anyone that thinks that the political appointees, um, you know, run the show at these agencies, I think is, you know, a little uh, a little delusional or, or just not, not in mm-hmm. reality. And even when you see people come in with the best of intentions, usually they don't get very far because they meet with a lot of entrenched resistance. And I also think that a lot of the problems with the BOP being from a lack of transparency, a lack of accountability. At the end of the day, the Bureau of Prisons has no oversight. No one's actually paying attention to anything they're doing. Yes. And having dealt with prisons and jails around the country, um, from California, Texas, Washington, um, you know, the BOP is really kind of unique in the sense that there really is no accountability. If you've got a problem with the BOP, there really isn't any place to go to. And, you know, there's no one, um, the number of prisoners that die on the BOP's watch, the levels of violence in BOP facilities and their, in their, um, you know, in their maximum security prisons, is as bad, if not worse than it is in any of these other places. Yeah. Um, and there's and there's no accountability. People don't get fired. Um, people don't. And it's funny because you know, as, as someone who who covers and reports on on prison and jail issues around the country, I see the Department of Justice um, doing investigations, which you know they're kind of lackluster. They usually don't go anywhere, but mm-hmm. you know, they purport to be trying and they mm-hmm. press releases um, about prison conditions in Alabama and now Georgia and stuff. But prison conditions are as bad, if not worse, in many BOP facilities. Oh, yeah. You know, you see on some of these uh, old TV shows, I've, I've said a hundred times, I, I watch Dragnet and Adam 12 every day when I get home just to decompress. And they're always talking about how uh, these guys they arrest would rather do federal time than state time because the facilities are so much better and the food is better and they can play sports and blah, blah, blah. And none of that's true anymore. None of it. I, I just don't understand, you know, it's funny to me all these years later that people, you know, preferred to do federal time. They just closed the penitentiary in Atlanta. Uh, they, and you've reported on this in Prison Legal News magazine. Uh, and uh, and there are stories now finally getting out that one of the reasons that they had to close the place was that it was so overrun by rats that they just finally gave up to the rats. They just couldn't do anything to to take care of the problem. And that's not terribly unusual in the federal system. And, and also the age of the buildings. I mean, it's one of those things that some people seem to think that, oh, you build a prison and you can just run it as a prison for two or 300 years. And the reality is that, you know, buildings have an operational life. That's right. 
know, there's, there's a reason that uh, skylines of cities change, and and the same goes with prisons. And and you know, and that's one of the things. I mean, the, the BOP has facilities that are many decades old, should have been retired ages ago, and haven't been. But again, I think we're we're still back to the lack of accountability and and any type of. The other thing too is, I think maybe at one point, um, and this may have been probably before our time, but you know, I mean, I've read that in the like in the fifties, maybe the sixties, the BOP actually was a place that was on the cutting edge of you know both prison reform and 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 prison mm-hmm. uh, rehabilitation programs. Mm-hmm. But those days are long gone. Long gone. And I've been, I haven't heard anyone in the 30-plus years I've been doing this work ever say that, oh, the BOP is the role model of anything positive. Well, let me ask you about that, if I can interrupt you for one second. One of the things that Reason Magazine and the Marshall Project said about this this Colette Peters, the new head of the Bureau of Prisons, is that she made a name for herself in Oregon by by traveling to Norway to study the Norwegian prison system, which is state-of-the-art, right? They don't have bars on the windows. They have Instead of cells, they have apartments with kitchens, and they they try to rehabilitate prisoners so that they can be ready to go back out into society again. When she came back from Norway, she oversaw, get this, the construction of a Japanese meditation garden at the penitentiary that she was overseeing. She had outside advisors host seminars for prison guards on issues like respect and dignity. She tried to phase out use of the word inmate and replace it with a prisoner's name. And frankly, I would never respond to inmate. It used to drive the guards crazy. I, I, I told one of them once, I'm not an inmate, I'm a prisoner, and you can address me as Mr. Kiriaku. And I walked away. Uh, she, uh, she tried to uh, improve physical conditions. Is it even possible to make these kind of changes on a nationwide scale? I mean, really, this is why she was brought into this job to enact these broad reforms. But is it even, is she even able to do something like that? We are a very, very long way from, from the Norwegian system. I would say that the big thing is, you know, you need to comply with basic things. Like first make sure prisoners have adequate medical care. Amen. You know, stop, not killing them, you know, before you can get to the meditation center, let, let's just focus on really basic stuff like stop killing people through medical neglect, stop beating them to death. Um, you know, we've seen like the failure to protect claims, for example, you know, Whitey Bulger, the, you know, 93-year-old informant gangster, yep. and he's beaten to death by another prisoner within hours of arriving at a new at a new maximum security prison. Yep. Now, this is the type of stuff that, you know, before. I think that most prisoners would say, yeah, it'd be great to have a Japanese meditation center. But on the other hand, if I get sick, I don't want to die of an easily treatable disease. Uh, if you're old or frail or whatever, you probably don't would just be happy not to get beaten to death um, as a prisoner. And, you know, I think these are all, you know, really basic things. Yeah. And, and it's not the headline grabbers. And that's the thing. Whatever you want to say about the Oregon system, we've been reporting on them for years, and I don't say that conditions under Peters got better or worse, but we're still reporting the same uh, the same uh, medical neglect stuff coming out of Oregon, the same retaliation uh, cases. That's a shame. Stuff like that. So I'm not really sure to what extent um, she may or may not have, have brought, have made any substantive reforms. Oh, that's that's a shame. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, 
Do you expect any major changes at the federal level uh, now that she's the head of the BOP? And I don't necessarily mean uh, ideas that she would be bringing with her from Oregon. I mean, Carvajal was such a disaster that there were hearings uh, on Capitol Hill about his tenure. People seem to be more focused on the BOP right now. She has a reputation as being a reformer. Do you expect any good to come out of this? I mean, I don't want to be, you know, too jaded or cynical, but I'd be very surprised if anything positive comes out of it. I mean, you look at it and see, and what's the last time you could say anything positive came out of the BOP in the past, say, half century? Um, so what does it take to turn that around and to bring anything, you know, better out of that? And yeah. and again, I would say that the big problem has been, you know, for a long time, has been the lack of any type of accountability. Um, sure, Congress has held hearings on BOP directors. There was the famous one where um, Samuels was the director and then Senator Al Franken asked them, what's the size of the average BOP cell? Yeah. The director didn't, didn't He couldn't answer. Even though, you know, he didn't even know how big prison cell was in the prison system that he oversaw. He was asked also, um, do you, do you, this is just in the last, uh, you know, month, uh, do you keep track of the number of suicides uh, that take place every day in the Bureau of Prisons. And he said, yes, I do. And the senator asked him, uh, what prison in the system has the most suicides? And he said, I have no idea. So how much attention could you possibly be paying? Well, I think but this is also, I think that the bureaucratic disconnect is, you know, are people really being hired to oversee a vast agency with prisons scattered around the country, um, 100, what, 150, 160,000 prisoners in their care, mm-hmm. 1,000 employees, and you know what are they really being expected to do? And and I think this is the this is where you start getting into the problems of you know the lack of oversight and you know, the yeah. lack of any type of vision. Yeah. You know, and and literally the Bureau of Prisons is, is just kind of like a, a giant warehouse operation. One of the things I find interesting is, you know, I'm actually the guy who does look at numbers probably more so than the BOP director. And when you start looking at the fact that there's tens of thousands of prisoners being held in uh, in the BOP for literally immigration offenses. These are people who've been deported once, they've come back, yes. being locked up for three or four years. And then presumably they get released and they get deported back to wherever they were originally trying to come from. That's right. And the... So, you know, this, these are the people that the government is spending a lot of money locking in a cage. And you now what is the discernible reason for locking them up? And when you talk to prison officials, you know, they tell you that they don't view that they have any type of rehabilitation mission for non-U.S. citizens because they're thinking, is, hey, they're going to get deported anyway. Mm-hmm. And when you actually start asking, well, what are you doing to rehabilitate or reform American prisoners who aren't going to be um at the end of their sentence, and, and that's kind of where things kind of fall, you know, kind of fall by the wayside. And oh, yeah. We don't have a lot. Like, some of the stuff that that you would think that is really basic, also from a, from a humanitarian, and it's actually legally required, just mental health treatment. Mm-hmm. And mental health treatment for the mentally ill in federal prisons is woefully inadequate at, at a lot of levels. And, and then there's also the big, the big thing, too, is the, the Supermax ADX prison. Been sued once already over uh, the fact that uh, you know, as is well known, for long solitary confinement, uh, if people aren't mentally ill, it makes them mentally ill. If you're already yeah. mentally ill, it makes you even even sicker. Yeah. And you know, this whatever the administration is doing, 
even though the United Nations and everyone else uh, recognizes that prolonged solitary confinement is a form of torture, um, the United States is, at the federal level, is pretty gung-ho with it. Mm-hmm. Talk about um, closing down the ADX in Florence, Colorado, or, change, or repurposing it, or, or changing its operations. That's right. That's right. We only have about a minute left. Uh, so I, I was, I'm going to ask you this really quickly. Uh, in Los Angeles, uh, this effort to recall District Attorney George Gascon uh, failed for the second time yesterday. They were not able to gather enough signatures to get a recall on the ballot. Um, do you detect any sort of nationwide trend on these recall issues one way or the other when we look at San Francisco and New York and L.A. and Philadelphia? Or is this just city by city? They have different uh, different needs and different concerns. I think this is all very much city by city. I think one of the reasons that they have criminal justice reform is uh, at the policing and the prosecutorial level is so difficult is because it literally is jurisdiction by jurisdiction. And one set of voters is very different than another. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I would have to say is I think in a lot of places, um, you know, part of the problem I think in, the, in this country is for a long time now, as we've kind of pushed away from any type of political or social solution to problems like homelessness or mental illness or yep. lack of mental health, of a public mental health care option, you know, people have increased. The government has basically given people only a police state option. Yes. And somehow the America can arrest, prosecute, and incarcerate its way out of its problems of social inequality and lack of a basic social safety net. I'm so sorry, Paul. We're totally out of time. We have a hard stop coming at the top of the hour. That was the voice of Paul Wright. We're going to get him back on soon. He's got a lot of important things to say. Paul is the executive director of the Human Rights Defense Center and managing editor of Prison Legal News and Criminal Legal News magazines. Check them out. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We have a lot more coming up in our second hour. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we've got a bunch of different topics that I want to get into in the next half hour. Mm -hmm. We are, of course, going to go into some more detail about the various legal dramas of Donald Trump, both the financial ones and the ones that are, you know, have, have him being accused of things like treason. We are going to talk about the fighting over and around the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. We will talk a little bit more about uh, a deep dive the Washington Post has taken into the, the lead up to the invasion of Ukraine and uh, and what that says, whether this is part of the U.S. continuing to try to put some daylight between it and uh, Volodymyr Zelensky. We are also, uh, I hope, going to ask uh, some questions about the future of our relationship with Afghanistan if we have time Joining us for all of this is Jim Cavanaugh. He's editor of The Polemicist. Jim, thanks for being here. Have we got Jim? Oh, yeah, I can hear you. Okay. Um, let's start with Trump and his financial woes. Uh, John and I were talking at the beginning of the show that it looks like former Trump Organization CFO Alan Weisselberg is going to plead guilty to tax evasion. Um, 
Weisselberg and Trump organization were charged uh, as a in part of a scheme, they say, prosecutors say, was concocted over 15 years to help officials in Trump organization avoid paying taxes. And so Weisselberg is accused of avoiding paying taxes on $1.7 million of his income uh, that he got in the form of perks like an apartment and a car. The deal that I don't know if it's been confirmed yet, but uh, we're, we're expecting that any time now. But uh, as part of the deal, Weisselberg is not expected to provide information about Trump or the company. Um, I guess, you know, the prosecutors didn't didn't want any more, didn't need any more. And so to me, this is interesting, right? This this is a guy who's been at Donald Trump's side for decade uh, for decades, and uh, he's going to get apparently five months uh, with time served to be, you know, taken off of that. And we're looking at tax evasion to the tune of less than two million dollars. I mean, on one hand, I say, sure, go go after everybody who's who's not paying taxes on millions of dollars of income, but this seems like kind of small potatoes. So I wonder what you make of this news, Jim. Yeah, in the context of New York City real estate, economics and politics, you know, where Trump was swallowing in that swamp for many decades, you know, one of the main swamp creatures of that, you know, it's it's almost impossible that a prosecutor couldn't find charges like this to uh, to bring against high play, high rise grifter like Trump or his organization, you know, avoiding taxes is you know, business as usual SOP. And this is, as you say, it's only one point seven million dollars in taxes. One apartment in New York City is is going to be more than that. So I, I don't know what they're doing here. And as the, the strange thing is, as you say, also that they don't seem to want any more information about about the Trump organization. So is this just a kind of final righteous? Uh, assault on Mr. Weisberg, or uh, are they going after the Trump organization? And we just don't know. Uh, but, you know, Trump has been part of that swamp, as I've said, for decades. The great Wayne Barrett from New York, uh, from the Village Voice, did great articles in a book, I think, about Donald Trump and his uh, financial hijinks and mob connections, et cetera. So, you know, they should be able to find something in there uh, against the Trump organization. And Weisberg, is only one of those, one of the crocodiles in the swamp. And I, I don't know why they're going particularly against him and nothing else, or whether they're using it in some other way. But it seems to be, a, as they're playing it, a, a, a single play that doesn't seem to, we can't see the ramifications of it for Trump, Trump organization widely. This is, you know, again, if, if all of this, the money and investigative power and and ink spilled. If this is what it leads to, I mean, one, I think there have to be more crimes, right? I mean, or else Donald Trump is really not the person I thought he was. But it also, you know, what what does this do to speculation by people who love Trump, no matter what? That anything you say against him, that any investigation into him is is by its nature politically motivated. Well, they're going to say that. Largely rightly so. I mean, as I say, you know, if you dig into the finances of uh, large scale real estate developers in New York and, you know, billionaires, period, you're going to find tax evasion. So the choice of where to go with that and whom to investigate and, you know, search their offices, et cetera, is always a, a choice that one can say. You know, if you see the difference in doing that in one case rather than another is politically motivated. Trump got away with this for many decades because he was 
the donor for the Democratic candidates. You know, mm -hmm. the, uh, my favorite uh, yeah. uh, slogan in 2016 was I'm not voting for Hillary or her donor. <laughs> you know, so uh, that, that's why Trump was able to get away with it without being investigated. Now he's in a different situation politically. So the people who support Trump are not necess don't necessarily think Trump wasn't wasn't evading, evading taxes. They're a lot of them are saying well, they're going after Trump because they don't like his politics now and he's threatening the he's threatening their political game. Uh, so, you know, it's hard for that not to be true. Also, <laughs> you know, it's hard for Donald Trump to have been what he was in New York without having avoided taxes. And it's hard to uh, ignore the fact that uh, he probably was never investigated for that because he was well connected politically and was a financial supporter of all the politicians. Jim, I want to ask you about uh, the affidavit. When the FBI raids your, your home or your business, they have to give you a search warrant and a copy of the affidavit that was used in order to secure the search warrant. So uh, both sides wanted the search warrant uh, released. It was released post-haste. Uh, the Trump people want the affidavit released. The government does not. The conventional wisdom is that there's classified information in it, and certainly DOD said that they don't want it released because uh, to do so would jeopardize ongoing investigations. What are your what are your thoughts behind all this? Um, it, you know, documents are declassified all the time, and so really all they would have to do to release the uh, to release the affidavit is to redact information that might be classified or to redact information that uh, would point to an ongoing investigation. It's really not that hard. What do you think? Well, what you say, I think, is true. If they wanted to do it, they could do it in a way that protected sources, which is what they want to do. Uh, not doing it uh, increases the uh, anxiety level and the frustration level of the Trump Trump team, the Trump defense team, because they don't know where this is coming from. Uh, so it's part of a prosecutorial game that, you know, is, again, standard operating procedure. We can understand why they do it. Of course, everybody who was initially saying, well, let's open the let's let's uh, release the warrant and every nobody should complain about releasing the warrant. And why doesn't Trump release the warrant? And now that, that the prosecutor, that, you know, uh, Garland has and Trump says it's OK. So now why don't they release this? I don't know. You know, it's a prosecutorial game yeah. that they're playing. And I think really in this context. You know, uh, the charges that are likely to be brought against Trump in any in any case that would be criminal would have to do with financial hijinks, tax evasion, et cetera. And either uh, they don't you know, they don't want they want to keep open the idea in people's minds that there's some treasonous thing going on here, espionage act, blah, blah, blah. Or they want to keep Trump, Trump, Trump confused. And it's a, it is a political game at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you also about the issue of the passports. Uh, Trump said that when the FBI came into Mar-a-Lago, they took his three passports. Uh, nobody should have three passports unless <laughs> what he was talking about was his passport and two old ones, invalidated ones. The FBI says they don't have his passports. He has his passports. It seems that they did take the passports and return them to him. Uh, can you shed some light on this? Oh, I have no idea how many, why he has three passports. Although people do, there are people who have multiple passports uh, uh, from different countries have yeah. different have dual dual citizenship. That's not three is a little weird. Yeah. 
And as you say, it could be a passport and a passport card and a, an old passport. But I don't know. They, so they took them. Is the FBI acknowledging that they did take they, them and they gave finally them back? Did. Yeah, they finally did acknowledge that they took them and gave them back. Right. So, you know, they did. I don't know what to make of that. You know, were they going to try and prevent him from leaving the country? Well, they gave him back. You know, so again, this is a, a this is a, a a molehill of an issue legally and politically, and whether he has his passport or not. He's got his passport. He's not being prevented from leaving the country or traveling uh, for that reason, anyway. And uh, I, I, don't, I don't really make anything of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, we'll see. It's just, it's, <laughs> it's just it's just such a mess. I still is, keep coming back mess. to feeling. So perplexed at what we are learning from these uh, investigations into the Trump organization, because I swear to God, I swear there's got to be more than tax evasion for less than two billion dollars. And again, we'll see Trump. This is not Trump org and their their staff. So maybe this this will be an anomaly for the CFO. But man, if that's all they come up with. I don't know what we're to think other than they don't want to open the can of worms. That would mean now you have to take up these kinds of prosecutions against every other organization like Trump organization in New York real estate. I don't know. Yeah. That to me is and even more confusing other, than the raid. Every other donor who's, who's like Trump, you know, yeah. I mean, the Republicans are sitting back saying, you know, you want to open up a can of worms about Donald Trump. Fine. But, you know, let's, let's look at your, your donors and Haim Saban and, you know, all, you know, we can open up this, this can, this is capitalist politics after all, you yeah. know, and, you know, we're going to take control of, uh, of the Senate or the, uh, the house. We're going to have investigations. We're going to have the justice department at some point. You want to yeah. play that game? We can play it. Who can play? So, you know, everybody's got to be a little bit careful about this. That's what Trump said. And is you know, when these are running, I was there. I know what's going on with them. Cause I get all of them. I was donor for all of them, the Republicans and the Democrats. Yeah. Yeah, it will be very interesting if that is what this reveals. And I think that you're probably right, Jim. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Ukraine and about this crisis that is still continuing um, with regard to the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. Uh, Russia and Ukraine are still accusing each other of endangering all of Europe with reckless behavior around the plant. Uh, Russia, of course, took over the territory, including the plant, pretty early on in the war. But Ukrainian staff have continued to operate the plant since then. Um, Ukraine has been accusing Russia of uh, mining the plant and using it as a base to store ammunition and to conduct shelling of the nearby area. They also are accusing Russia of shelling the plant itself, which is hard for me to make sense of. Russia says it's Ukraine who's shelling the plant. Russia last week requested a meeting of the UN Security Council on the issue. The IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, for its part, says it's alarmed and wants to visit the plant again. And Russia yesterday said, basically, we'll do our best. And so, you know, Ukraine kind of understandably is taking the position that the plant will be a danger in danger until Russia withdraws from the area completely, because, of course, that is what they want. Um, Not something that is likely to be achieved anytime soon. And so I wonder what you make of how this danger is, is being handled by all sides. And again, you know, People have different positions on on the war in Ukraine, and people also uh, can, I think, with some justification, take the position that we don't care. It's not our problem. But when you are talking about, uh, you know, the sanctity of a nuclear power plant, then I think you have a lot more stakeholders, whether you want to be or not. Yes, uh, this is a dangerous situation. Uh, And 
you know, uh, I think Ukraine is playing this to to try and get Russia out of that area. You know, I do not see any reason why Russia would be shelling itself in this situation uh, to cast it as a as a kind of false flag against Ukraine. They don't need that for those purposes. And it, it, it you know, it, but this this the the nuclear plant has to be. It should be. Uh, Open to inspect and inspected by the IAEA. Definitely, they should go in and they should, they should inspect it. Russia should make that available, make it easy to do. Ukraine should not put any any uh, block against that. The United States should not surreptitiously try to prevent that from happening, which I suspect is exactly what's going to what's going to go on. Ukraine cannot make a condition for that that the Russians have to leave the area first. That's not going to happen. You know, you can't ask for, for the for the war to be settled before you deal with this. This should be dealt with. And, you know, Russia is either letting the plants operate and, you know, not using it in a way that endangers it. If, it's, if it were using it for weapon storage or for base of attacks, that would be that would be a, a bad thing and they shouldn't do that. And Ukraine has to not try and use this as a pawn to get the Russians out or to, you know, create a, a, an emergency because Ukraine is the one that needs to create a disaster, a disastrous emergency that might, you know, get NATO more involved, that might demand, you know, a military attack on that area to get the Russians out or whatever. You know, so I'm very suspicious of this. And it's extremely dangerous because, you know, the shelling a nuclear power plant is not a good idea, and it can hurt tens of thousands of people, at least in the area. Yeah. I also wanted to get your thoughts on this big piece in the Washington Post today about how uh, it's sort of about the the run up to the to the war from a U.S. NATO perspective and from many anonymous perspectives. Um, but it wants us to believe that the U.S. struggled to convince allies, including Zelensky, that Russia did indeed intend to start a war. It includes more bragging about how deeply the U.S. had penetrated Russia's political leadership, intelligence, and military, which might make it difficult uh, to explain how for months we've also been told by these same people with this supposed deep penetration that Ukraine is, is winning the war. Um, uh, it notes that Biden had grave concerns about Zelensky himself, who the piece says had lost public standing in part because he failed to make good on a promise to make peace with Russia. And so, you know, what is this? Is this more of the U.S.? trying to distance itself from Zelensky. We've seen some efforts that look like that with some whispers to Tom Friedman in the New York Times and some other statements coming out of this White House expressing, you know, a lack of confidence in Zelensky personally. Um, what is this? And also, you know, we, we've talked about there's a little bit of back and forth between what appears to be the U.S. Intelligence Department and the U.S. Defense Department, with the Intelligence Department wanting to brag about all its many accomplishments in in the sort of theater of war in Ukraine, and the DOD, you know, trying after these reports come out to walk them back because you know the the CIA and bragging about its great. Uh, you know, directing Ukrainian weapons, like mm -hmm. we're responsible for the deaths of Russian generals, is going to walk NATO into into a war if it doesn't watch its mouth a little bit. So, what what are we to make of some of these uh, these stories? They have lied about this and admitted 
lied about this war from the beginning. They've said, you know, yeah, we're going, we're making up a narrative that, you know, we, some of the things we say aren't necessarily true. We don't know that no, we don't necessarily know that they're true, but we need to say them anyway. They've we're actually admitted that, you know, in mainstream press. So, in this situation, you know, I do think, you know, it was, as I remember it, it was clear that the United States was saying Russia is going to invade. Now, I, I didn't think it was impossible that Russia was going to intervene, invade in Ukraine. I thought it was, I thought they were likely to declare a recognition of the Donbass republics and intervene if there was any attack on the Donbass republics, which I thought there was going to be. And I think yeah. Russia thought there was going to be. So I thought they were preparing themselves for military action in Ukraine. Uh, but the United States, you know, was uh, the saying things that turned out to be truer than other people were saying. The French and the Germans didn't think so. The Ukrainians didn't think so, or at least they didn't want to say so because they don't want to panic Ukraine, which would have been disastrous economically and politically. So, you know, the United States can now present that as, you know, we were right and everybody else was wrong. They, they have some uh, legitimacy to that, to, that, to that claim. Although, again, what's being prevented, from, what's not being said and wasn't being said in that piece you know, oh, Putin, well, we tried to talk Putin out, we tried to pursue this diplomatically, but he wasn't really interested. Well, you know what, and they say, you know, and in January, I think it was, they had their negotiations, and it was for Putin the last stand. He was saying, look, this is our deal. You've got to know, know Ukraine in NATO. You've got to back Ukraine, NATO out of these, these countries that came into NATO in Eastern Europe since 1997. And that's what he's been saying for years. And he's been, this is, and years ago, you know, three or four years ago, the Russians decided that really the Americans, what they call not agreement capable, that we don't really trust that we can make an agreement with them. So it wasn't just since October that Putin decided it was unlikely there was going to be a diplomatic agreement. They concluded because of what the United States did with the eastward expansion of NATO, which they had promised not to do, because of what Zelensky did and the Ukrainians did with the Minsk agreement, which and and the the Americans and Europeans by default in not, you know, enforcing the Minsk agreement and and Zelensky in turning his back on it and getting into power and saying, we're going to take back Ukraine. You know, in the months before this, in 2021, it was, we're going to take back Crimea. Crimea. We're not going to give up an inch. And, we, and they never, they, and they explicitly said they weren't going to abide by the Minsk. We're going to take back Donbass. So mm -hmm. that's what Putin had to deal with. And he had made up his mind, I think, that if I don't get, I'm giving one final uh, 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 play here, which is in, in January. This is what has to happen. Otherwise, something bad is going to happen. So this is, you know, this is all true. And that's the situation we've been in since, you know, not just since October, but since 2014 in Ukraine, essentially, when the United States and NATO turned it into a, a, a cat's paw against Russia, mm -hmm. militarily, as well as economically. And since 1990s, really, when the United States decided to go to war in Yugoslavia, NATO, turn NATO into a, 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 an offensive mm -hmm. uh, a weapon for imperialist wars. I think it's interesting that, you know, you don't you don't get a lot of mention in the U.S. press about the Minsk agreements, which were supposed to end the fighting uh, over the Donbass uh, after 2014. Very rarely does that get a mention or the fact that Ukraine had agreed to these agreements and, and steadfastly refused to implement them. And so I think it is interesting that uh, peace with Russia, this sort of euphemism for this complicated process, gets a mention here, but the U.S. is really distancing itself from any um, any role in blocking that, right? It's all on Zelensky now. 
And so I, th- I think this is interesting. As you say, like the, the U.S. has been involved in Ukraine for a very long time. Um, you can start that clock at 2014. You can push it back earlier if you want to. Uh, and I think w- what we are seeing is sort of a pattern here where the United States wants to walk away from any responsibility for standing in the way uh, of any of these agreements and continue to sort of heap all of the blame on the Zelensky government as though— uh, the government and Zelensky personally have been sort of acting of their own accord without any uh, without any input from the United States, without any uh, pressure. In what it wants to do, and they're in a very difficult position. The Americans, because you know, they have they're talking as if they're going to help Zelensky win, and that 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 they back Zelensky 100%, but they know he's not capable of doing it. And they want to be able to have them put themselves in a position where if he does fail, and it's clear that he fails, well, it really was his fault. And they, we tried to do other things. They want to do all that. But it's very difficult to do when everybody's running around saying, oh, we are, we're backing you 100%. We're not going to let you go down at all. You know, We're in this till the end with you. So they've got themselves in a bind about this. And uh, I, I don't really know how they're going to get out of it. Uh, and I don't know how Zelensky is going to get out of it, because it, a, a resolution is going to come here that is clearly going to be a loss for one side or the other. And it's almost 100 percent certain that it'll be a loss for Ukraine of territory, of more territory than it would have been a much worse loss than the Minsk agreements would have. Uh, you know what, they, what they're going to be trying to do now is to go, is to reinstate the Minsk agreements. And Russia is not going to have it. There's not going to be a Minsk III. And, and really what you're going to, they're going to lose now much more territory. They're going to lose Kherson. They're going to lose Zaporozhye. Uh, they may lose Odessa. So this is going to go on until the Russians are satisfied that they are, they have what they need to protect themselves from, from any more of this stuff going on. And uh, what what is, what, how are the Americans going to get out of this looking either like they haven't abandoned Zelensky or Ukraine, or they've just accepted a loss. And this it's is very, process, very difficult, right? which makes this say, a difficult oh, well, situation. It's all, it's all his fault, actually. We, you know, we tried, we did our best, but we couldn't work with this man. I think that's what, that's what this sort of slow yeah. softening up process is. Hey, Jim, while we have you, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about some of the um, some of the suggestions our uh, biggest media outlets have for our future relationship with Afghanistan. The Washington Post had a, an astonishing editorial yesterday uh, talking about what our future approach should Af- uh, to Afghanistan should be. Um, the Post says, you know, look, looking at a country uh, where the prospect of famine is widespread, the Post writes, our priority should be preventing Afghanistan from again becoming a base for terrorist attacks. So uh, an extreme sort of moral callousness on display right there. But the way that we're supposed to prevent Afghanistan from becoming a, a site of terrorism is for the Biden administration to tell the Taliban that the U.S. can and will take out more targets in Afghanistan if necessary, and that uh, continuing to host Extremist groups will mean we're not going to recognize your government. The White House should also leverage exposure of ongoing ties between al-Qaeda and the Taliban to seek greater counterterrorism help from countries such as Pakistan. Sorry, Jim, it is insane to me that the Post is saying a good way to prevent terrorism is to continue to do random drone strikes in a country whose government you won't recognize and to keep pressing 
Pakistan to work with us uh, as a as a trustworthy partner. I mean, where have you been for the last, let's say, 40 years? Does this make any sense to you? Going back, exactly. As you say, let's start all over again. Right where we started before. Let's get the Pakistanis involved and we're, we're going to take over. We're going to control Afghanistan through the Pakistanis. <laughs> you know? yeah. and, 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 and there'll be no uh, involvement with, you know, what they call terrorist groups or whatever, you know, I mean, excuse me, but the way you deal with a country is, first of all, giving them money back, (laughs) you know, secondly, we're not going to attack you. We're going to encourage you to, you know, have a more democratic society and have a treat women better, et cetera. But, you know, we're going to have decent, respectful relations with your country and we're not going to try and bully you into this. And especially, I mean, the United States talking about harboring terrorist groups and who, what is going on in Syria? I mean, yeah. the United States is protecting the Syria, the, 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 is arming and protecting the Syrian government, uh, protecting ISIS from the Syrian government. You know, they're they're continuing uh, the, the the war in Syria with ISIS and Al Qaeda, whom Jake Sullivan said we're on the Al Qaeda is on our side in Syria. Yeah. So the United States is in no position uh, to be preaching to other people and punishing them for doing the same things that they that the United States is doing. And, yeah. you know, they, we spent what the United States policy to Afghanistan should be. We give you back your money and some reparations for what we did to you for 20 years. And, you know, we'll try to figure out a way to have decent, respectful relations that we are not preaching and, and demanding of you how to, how to act. I think it is hilarious here also uh, that the the Post does not recommend that we give back any of that $7 billion, uh, but we should rally donors to meet the UN humanitarian funding appeal, which is short of its target. So we can't give you any of that $7 billion we have frozen, but it's fine for other countries to give you. We'll go around with like a, a, a cup and rattle it at everybody else in the, in the UN to try to get them to give you some money. It's just, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it's 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 even in in American imperialist logic in this case, you know, Afghanistan doesn't have a major role right now. They're they're not going to go back in and control the country the way they thought they could, you know, 20 years ago. And from a point of view of, you know, what is it doing for the United States not to take the attitude that, okay, now we're going even with Vietnam, they've got they're getting along with Vietnam now. Yeah, I mean, but this is really I think. This is really something that's that is probably a political play to the Republican warmongers or to the Democratic warmongers who say, you know, mm-hmm. uh, we got, I got to show you that I'm going to be tough, even though I got, I got out of it. I retreated from Afghanistan in a particularly ignominious way. And now I got to got to demonstrate my toughness. It's really just kind of um, super stupid macho that has no logic, even from the point of view of keeping your imperial power in play in an effective way in that region. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, really mind-boggling. That was Jim Cavanaugh, editor of The Polemicist. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live. Right back.
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Uh, We're going to talk about politics. There are some important races going on today, and we're going to discuss those races with Ray Valencia here in the studio. Ray is a Sputnik News analyst and the producer of this show. Ray, there was a piece in the Washington Post that just made me so angry, I, I just wanted to shout. Uh, and it was talking about Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney's going to lose today. She's in a tough race. Polls show her getting about 24%. She's begging Democrats, or she had been begging Democrats, to switch parties so they could vote for her in the Republican primary. She doesn't have a prayer. She's going to lose this race pretty handily. And uh, her dad, Dick Cheney, the notorious Prince of Darkness, Thank you. former the Vice Prince President of Darkness, Dick Cheney. I think people are forgetting he, this yeah, somehow. <laughs> he did an ad for her, which uh-huh. helped her not one iota. And the Washington Post ran an opinion piece a couple of days ago saying that, uh, that Dick Cheney was the cause of Liz Cheney's demise, that a lot of people are underestimating just how unpopular Dick Cheney remains all these years after having served as vice president. You know, he was not just vice president. He was sort of de facto president uh, when when he served under George W. Bush. And he was really the father of the torture program, the uh, the secret prison program that the CIA ran uh, the illegal uh, international renditions program. And uh, like many of the senior CIA leaders of that period, he's never made any apology for the decisions that he made. Uh, I remember going to Barack Obama's inauguration in 2008, and I've been to a whole bunch of inaugurations, right? I've lived in Washington for 40 years, and I like to take my kids. They're historic. They're fun. And I had never been at an inauguration until 2008 when the outgoing president and vice president were introduced and the booing was so loud that it drowned out any other uh, any other sounds that that's how much people hated Dick Cheney and just wanted him to go. Well, he's back and he's trying to help his daughter get reelected. What are your thoughts on the uh, on the race today in Wyoming? Well, I guess the ads narrowed the gap a little bit, but there's no way that she's going to win. I think a lot of folks in Wyoming remember, uh, you know, 9-11, and then there's the, the Republicans that support Trump. Yeah. So I don't see how she's going to be popular with independents that are disillusioned over Cheney. I don't see how she's going to be popular with Democrats who she's been courting to come over and vote for her. Yeah. Um, I don't know how many Democrats really forgot about the Prince of Darkness. Well, and, the thing is, know, is Liz Cheney, there's nothing Helen liberal. Burke, there's, there's nothing, nothing progressive about, about Liz Cheney. No. Uh, you know, if you look at her voting record, if you look at her, at her, um, you know, percentages by the Americans for Democratic Action or the AFL-CIO or the ACLU, she's a solid conservative Republican vote, solid. And whether she liked uh, Donald Trump or not, she voted with Donald Trump 90% of the time. She's trying to make a distinction without a difference. That's right. You know, and so 
Another important race, just to jump in here with that, is Secretary of State in Wyoming is on the ticket today on the ballot. Um, Apparently, the current Secretary of State is retiring. There's an open seat. And guess what? There is a Trump endorsement in the race. And that gentleman seems to be leading. There you go. So just to remind everyone that any one of these states that has a Secretary of State, okay, and a governor that's willing to go along could Mm -hmm. upend the election in 2024. Yeah. So it's just like an interesting thing. I guess I've been obsessed with secretary of state races. They're important races yeah, and, yeah. and usually overlooked. And I think we've got a couple of Liz Cheney ads. Oh, yeah. So, is that right? Uh, the Liz Cheney, you know, the price I'm willing to pay. So this is really interesting to me because in running political ads, I often think about who is the audience here? Because she's not mentioning anything about what she wants to do as a congressperson. For the constituents of Wyoming, it's an ad she's running basically against Donald Trump running for president in 2024, and it's known as the price I'm willing to pay. It was so popular online, it went viral. Initially, she just aired it in Wyoming. Mm -hmm. Now it's all over the internet, Mm -hmm. and guess what? This week, it's going to air on Fox News on some of Donald Trump's favorite shows, Sean Hannity and Fox and Friends. Yeah, they better get a move on because the election's today. Okay, so well, let's roll. Why don't we listen to that yeah, clip? Yeah, let's roll uh, Cheney. Let's Cheney. As election day nears, I want to talk to citizens across our great state and all across our country. America cannot remain free if we abandon the truth. The lie that the 2020 presidential election was stolen is insidious. It preys on those who love their country. It is a door Donald Trump opened to manipulate Americans to abandon their principles, to sacrifice their freedom, to justify violence, to ignore the rulings of our courts and the rule of law. This is Donald Trump's legacy, but it cannot be the future of our nation. History has shown us over and over again how these types of poisonous lies destroy free nations. Like many candidates across this country, my opponents in Wyoming have said that the 2020 election was rigged and stolen. No one who understands our nation's laws, no one with an honest, honorable, genuine commitment to our Constitution would say that. It is a cancer that threatens our great republic. If we do not condemn these lies, if we do not hold those responsible to account, we will be excusing this conduct, and it will become a feature of all elections. America will never be the same. Nothing in our public life is more important than the preservation of the miracle given to us by God and our founding fathers. Oh, Nothing. We even got a little religion. Here's oh. my pledge to you. Wow. I will work every day to ensure that our exceptional nation long endures. My children and your children must grow up in an America where we have honorable and peaceful transitions of power, not violent confrontations, intimidation, and thuggery, where we are governed by laws and not by men, where we are led by people who love this I'd country I'd vote against her just because this commercial's so long. <laughs> no matter how yes. long we must fight, this is a battle we will win. Millions of Americans across our nation, Republicans, Democrats, Independents, stand united in the cause of freedom. We are stronger, more dedicated, and more determined than those trying to destroy our republic. This okay. is our great yeah. task. Um, yeah, that, that to me is right? not an effective ad. It's not an effective ad. What does it have to do with running for Congress? Nothing. 
nothing. And the music sounds the like music. it's it's from a funeral home. <laughs> and uh, and she's just not convincing. You know, she she's not really talking about issues other than at the most um, esoteric level. Uh, and listen, most people have already made up their minds. You can't run this just in the days before the election. You're not going to convince anybody. It's already done. It's already done. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I wonder too how much money she's uh, she's raised. I I should have looked and I and I didn't. But I'd be interested in how much money she's raised. She's hasn't gotten any major endorsements, and, and she's a longtime incumbent. So it's I think it's it, it's time. For her to go. So I have a Dick Cheney ad. It's in the same vein. It's a minute and a half. We don't have to listen to Oof. the whole. We can get 30 <laughs> seconds into it. But I just want to give you a sense of how he talks about Trump being a coward. And he's trying to elicit the support of Democrats yeah. and independents again. Can you and imagine? This is a history where he was saying in 2002 and 2004, they ran on this whole idea. Like, if Democrats aren't with us on this whole war on terrorism... You know, they're affecting our national security and, uh, you know, the terrorists are going to get us and all this stuff. And now they're trying to get the Democrats and the no war Republicans. You know that old saying, I wouldn't pee <laughs> on him if he were on fire. That's how I feel about Dick Cheney. And it's amazing to me that Dick Cheney has the unmitigated gall to ask Democrats to switch parties to vote for his daughter. Like, why? Why would they? I, I don't understand. Let's listen to that clip, at least we a part of it. We can a part of it, yeah. In our nation's 246-year history, there has never been an individual who is a greater threat to our republic than Donald Trump. He tried to steal the last election using lies and violence to keep himself in power after the voters had rejected him. He is a coward. A real man wouldn't lie to his supporters. He lost his election, and he lost big. I know it, he knows it, and deep down, I think most Republicans know it. Lynn and I are so proud of Liz for standing up for the truth, doing what's right, honoring her oath to the Constitution, and so many in our party are too scared to do so. They're Liz just trying to bore people into not going to the polls. Yeah, it's That's the same funeral it. it's boring, home music. But it's like so, yeah. so much hypocrisy in it, because he's talking about the very thing he was criticizing the Democrats for, you know, several years say, ago. I think this is a little bit better than the previous one, only because I think the only thing you can like people who like Donald Trump have decided you're not going to show them something that's going to make them decide they don't care about him and yeah. they don't want to vote for him, except maybe there is a little bit of hay to be made with this idea that Donald Trump called people to the White House on January 6th and he is letting them go down. He's he's letting he's he lied to them and now he's letting them take the punishment that he's not going to get. Maybe for people who, you know, actually know someone who is good, who is being prosecuted for their part in that riot or something. Maybe there's something to that. But and so he sort of invoked that here. But yeah. that's the only I mean, if, if that's slim hope. Yeah, you know? I, I agree. I agree. You know, it's funny on a national scale. Uh, it it might be things might be turning a little bit. Uh, Laura Ingram, that just awful, horrible uh, host from Fox News, uh, was talking about Donald Trump last night on her show and said that maybe it's time to turn the page. That's the first time she said something like that. 
I think Hannity's probably of the same mind. Uh, in Wyoming, they're still sort of stuck. And I think that they might be stuck in Alaska as well. You know, funny, Alaska is the only state in America that has two runoffs, right? And they have ranked voting. And they have ranked voting. So so you you get like there were literally 52 people running for the, the Republican nomination for House of Representatives this last time. Then, you know, you do rank voting. Then they took the top four. So the top four are running today. And the top two of of the four who uh, have the most votes, they're the ones on the ballots on the ballot in November. So you could have a Republican and a Democrat. You could have two Republicans. You could have a Republican and an independent. It's the weirdest system. Yeah. The question is, how well today does um, what's her face do? Sarah Palin. Sarah Palin. I I blanked out for a second. I know. How well does Sarah Palin really with name recognition? Right. She's the only one with name recognition. But um, part of her problem with that name recognition is a lot of Alaskans believe that she abandoned them. She's the quitter, right? First of all, she was only governor for two years. Mm -hmm. That's it. She was mayor of Wasilla, which has like eight people in it. Then she was the governor for two years, and she quit to run for vice president. After she lost, though. She got the reality show and she was on Dancing with the Stars and the Masked Singer. And then she had uh, a a newspaper column that was like a gossip column. She moved to Arizona. She only moved back to Alaska to run for office. Mm -hmm. So a lot of Alaskans are saying, you know, we don't really appreciate this kind of treatment. So this is going to be an interesting race to watch, too. I got to tell you. Coming back to my favorite race of the year. Oh, yeah. What's going on in Pennsylvania, John? You know, because I, <laughs> I, I, I want to be as transparent as possible. When John Fetterman first announced that he was running for the Senate a year ago, I sent 50 bucks. So I'm on the mailing list and I get I'm bombarded. Oh, so right? am I. I'll out. get a half a dozen yeah. emails a day just from the Fetterman campaign. Mm-hmm. But they're usually so much fun to read mm-hmm. and they have videos attached and they're he just good. seems like a nice guy. Yeah, Whoever their comms department is, is doing a real. You know what? Job. And I, I was wondering about that because the comms are so personal. You know, it's him. He's the one that actually runs his own Facebook page. Oh, so when great. people write questions, <laughs> he answers them. Oh, yeah. Great. So anyway. Uh, Dr. Oz, let me back up (laughs) two seconds here. The the Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee uh, announced yesterday that it was withdrawing $10.7 million in advertising uh, to refocus. Uh, There are some races that they're just walking away from in terms of advertising. Those are the Senate races in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Nevada, and Arizona. This is big news that almost nobody covered. It was only in the hill.com. So they're just walking away. Ten, $10.7 million. And the DSCC is walking away. The DSCC is not. Oh, the DSCC is not. The Republicans, so the Republicans are walking away. The are walking away because they see it as a loser. Yeah, they're losers. Yeah, the, these states are losers for them. They're going to spend their money in closer states like Ohio and North Carolina, they said, and Wisconsin. That's interesting. So yesterday... This decision, not yesterday, two, three days ago, this decision was made by the Oz campaign that 
As much as he doesn't want to, he has to spend more of his own money. So he came up with what might be the worst political ad I've ever seen in my life. Uh, It's Dr. Oz going into a grocery store in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Now, he identifies this grocery store as Wegmans. Wegmans. Yeah. No. No, it's not. It's, he did uh... not say Wegmans. He said Wegners. Oh. So it's unclear whether he's in Wegman, Wegmans or whether he's in Redners. Oh. Which are both Pennsylvania grocery store chains. So he says he's in Wegners because his wife asked him to buy crudite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, nobody knows what the heck crudite well, is. I do. But... I know, but... But most Pennsylvanians don't. <laughs> Crudite. So he walks in. He says, hey, I'm here in Wegner's. I need to buy crudite. And he starts picking up the vegetables to buy it. Well, John Fetterman attaches the ad, puts it on Twitter and Facebook and says, oh, wait, don't you want to roll the ad first and then tell you tell him what Fetterman said? Sure. That's a good idea. Okay, let's, let's run the, the ad. Crudite ad, and then we're going to hear John explain Fetterman's reaction. I'm going to do some grocery shopping. I'm at Wegner's, and uh, my wife wants some vegetables for crudite, right? So here's a broccoli. That's two bucks. Well, a ton of broccoli here. Here's some asparagus. That's $4. Yep. Carrots. That's four more dollars. There's $10 of vegetables there. And then we need some guacamole. That's $4 more. She loves salsa. Yeah, there's salsa there. Six dollars must be a shortage of salsa. Guys, that's twenty dollars for crudite. This doesn't include the tequila. I mean, yeah. that's outrageous. <laughs> we got Joe Biden to thank for this. Yeah, Joe Biden erect crudite for everybody. So yeah. John Fetterman uh, posts this this ad on Twitter and says, "In Pennsylvania, we call this a veggie tray." Yeah. And it's a strange crudite plate, like with guacamole. I'll say. And with like, what's going and on the giant that? carrots. And the giant. Like, come on. I mean, he nobody's going to eat your foot long carrots. He doesn't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> um, I went back to 538.com. <laughs> I went back to 538.com today to look at the numbers. Uh, and their poll of polls uh has uh Fetterman 53 and Oz 46 uh with 1% going to the libertarians um that's a very conservative poll the latest poll that was released by the Fetterman campaign shows Fetterman 53 and Oz 42 so with the Senate campaign committee walking away from this race i think this is Fetterman's Wow. Did you see his campaign event on Friday? He was out for the first time. Right. Yeah. It was kind of emotional. It was very actually. emotional. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the Republicans are angry at Oz, too, because he's just not campaigning. He's not. I mean, here you have Fetterman, who was who was off the campaign trail uh, for three and a half months because he had the stroke. Any other candidate would have seized the opportunity to try to shake the hand of every voter in the state while the other guy can't respond. Oh, that's an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Right and there. Oz just didn't do anything. Yeah. Another thing that Fetterman keeps hitting Oz on is Oz owns six homes. And I mean like 10,000 square foot palaces. And they're in places like Miami Beach 
and Beverly Hills, and he's got a Fifth Avenue par- uh, uh, apartment in New York City, and he's got this giant beachfront mansion in New Jersey. You know where he lives in Pennsylvania? Betterman? Yeah, no. Oh, Oz. Uh, Oz. Um, yeah. he, he doesn't live in Pennsylvania. He's using his in-law's address. Oh, it's the, that's right. As his address to run for the Senate, because the Constitution says you have to be 30 years old and a resident of the state in which you're running. Well, he's not a resident. So what he did is he just used their address to register to vote. And he's pretending to be a Pennsylvanian. Wow. My impression is that he just carpet bagged and kind of moved in there. But he's not. No, it's even worse than carpet bagging. He's like running on a Dropbox somewhere. Yeah, he really is. Yeah, There were a couple of other things that were very interesting to me. There was a report today that came out also at the Hill saying that for the first time ever, um, DeSantis is leading Trump among Republicans in Florida. Wow. The last time we talked about this, it was inching that way, but not there. But DeSantis was was in the in the mid 20s and Trump was in the 60s. That's flipped. I think. Oh, I can't even believe I'm going to say these words, but I think Laura Ingram is right. I think Trump is done. Yeah. And they need to move on. We've been talking about I said it. We said it weeks ago. Yeah. That there's this kind of inflection point, right? That's right. And he's still the most popular Republican, but, you know, there's been a lot of this kind of type of Republican before. Mm-hmm. That's know, right. George Wallace. This has happened before. I mean, it's not like, and there'll be another Trump in the future. Yeah, there will. There was yeah. Huey Long, mm-hmm. and then there was George Wallace. And even before Huey Long, there was there was uh, Father Coughlin. I mean, these mm-hmm. these 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 demagogues right. there'll pop be another up every once in a while. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, one other point I wanted to make. There was a very interesting um, uh, poll that was released today by Ipsos showing that Democrats and Republicans are equally angry going into the midterms. 42% of Democrats and 41% of Republicans say that they're angry. That's their their number one motivator to go to the polls. That's very, very unusual. Usually it's one, it's out of whack. It's Mm -hmm. one party that's much angrier than the other. And that's what motivates them. Everybody's angry this time. And then 538 said that they have this proprietary algorithm. This is kind of complicated. That tracks voting patterns in the state of Washington. Because these voting patterns can be applied nationally in off-year elections. You with me so far? And it says that the Democrats in Washington aren't doing nearly as poorly as everybody expected them to do six months ago, but they're not doing as well as they did in 2018. So their algorithm is saying exactly what we said on the show last week, that the Republicans are looking at picking up 12 seats in the House and losing one or two seats in the Senate. Did you see the poll showing Marco Rubio losing in Florida? How do you like that? that. Wow. You know, yeah, that's, I thought that was interesting. That's I mean, a, you know, it very, wasn't by a ton, but. but it's, it's close. That's a race that has been close from the beginning, but Rubio has led it from the beginning. 
And now this latest poll shows him him losing. You know, the funny thing is, and his opponent is escaping me right now. Val Demings. Val Demings. So Val Demings was the police chief of um, uh, Miami. Of, was it, no, it what, Miami? It was, uh, where's Disney? It's uh, Orlando. Oh, I'm sorry, Orlando. Yeah, she was the police chief of Orlando. Solid, solid law enforcement credentials. And he had the nerve to call her weak on crime. Well, what was interesting mm. is I remember her saying in an interview is, you know, while Marco Rubio's home, asleep, safe in his bed, yeah. I was out dealing with crime. Yeah, she was. Yeah. She was. You know, I remember thinking, wow, she would be a terrific running mate for mm-hmm. Joe Biden. And and she made it to the final cut. But yeah. uh, he, he. I remember, you know, too, reading ideas. about that and thinking, wow, that would be a really great ticket. You wanted to say Can I something. Tell you guys, please. Some t- I just wanted to tell you some terrible news out of Florida that crossed my uh Path Uh-oh. in the last hour. So this is from a, a Slate Courts writer. Um, but you know, Florida has. I guess Florida has a um, parental notification requirement Ooh. for abortion. Mm-hmm. Uh, Florida appeals court just affirmed an order prohibiting a parentless sixteen-year-old from getting an abortion. <gasps> so saying they the, in the appeals court holds with the ruling of the first court that the teen had not proven she was mature enough to get an abortion and therefore they weren't allowed to waive the parental notification requirement which of course she can't meet the state has stepped in and said no 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 you're going to have to actually have this baby instead my god you so know this Vir- is what- oh. virginia used to have a parental notification law and the reason why they got rid of it was because there was a 16 year old girl who got pregnant. She wanted an abortion. She went to an abortion clinic. They wouldn't give it to her because she had to have parental notification. So she tried to hide it from her parents. And then when it came time to deliver the baby, she hemorrhaged and bled to death. Oh my God. You know what I keep thinking about is I grew up in foster care. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I was a ward of the court. Mm -hmm. What if you're a foster kid, foster teenager in one of these states? Yeah. You're just at the whim of the judge that you're in front of. It's just horrifying yeah yeah um more breaking news if you guys want some there is uh gonna be a court hearing the day after tomorrow on that uh affidavit on uh, efforts to release the trump raid affidavit so wow that's fast yeah yeah that is very fast uh, we only have a minute left. You wanted to say something about the gubernatorial race in Texas. I do. And I have some great ads to play. And I think we're going to have to hold it for another segment. Mm-hmm. But okay. um, I do want to talk about Arizona and this activist group, a group of yes. mothers, mothers against Greg Abbott. Yeah. It's in Arizona. It's in Arizona. I'm sorry, Texas. Oh. I apologize, Texas. Okay. I'm getting my <laughs> states like, all wow. mixed up. I was going to say, boy, yeah, they must I hate apologize. Greg Abbott if they're not I, I even apologize. constituents of his. Greg anymore. Abbott in uh, <laughs> Texas, we will be talking about in the next political. Okay. Election. Maybe we yeah. can get into that tomorrow. Oh, that means I have time. Yes. Uh, more legal news. We have Brittany Griner filing an appeal yes, of her indeed. nine-year prison sentence. I guess uh, her lawyers are saying this is excessive. Usually the sentence is five years uh, and and about a third of these people get granted parole. So we'll see. There are obviously talks underway uh, for a prisoner swap. And then some news that I want to get into a little bit more. Uh, they're going to try and bring back the Tasmanian tiger. I saw that. Do you see this? Yeah. this How cool is that? I did That's not cool. know that we were all agreed that we would try to de-extinct, which is this term that keeps coming up in this story. I didn't know that was a thing that we were trying to do as a, as a planet. I mean, 
cool, right? I'd be great to see the Tasmanian tiger um, back. Uh, they are saying they ha- they have genetic material. They like ha- they've sequenced the yes. genome of a specimen of the Tasmanian tiger. They have this whole plan for how they can build that up and find a, a surrogate for the first embryo that they build out of this DNA. And that, let me see, they're saying uh, the first Tasmanian tiger joeys could be born in 10 years. That's wow. Very. And they're I the oddest looking, uh, yeah, the oddest look looking like? animals too. They're like the back half of them is spotted and the front half is not. Striped. They're the back half is striped, striped. like a tiger, striped. but they're a yeah. marsupial. They're the right, only they're marsupial, marsupial apex predator. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Um, they're not very big. No. I think they're like the size of dogs. Yes. And uh, yeah, wow. maybe we'll get to to go and see one hopping around. Very, around. very cool. <laughs> lifetimes. All right, we got to go. We have so much stuff to talk about tomorrow uh, and, and for the rest of the week. But we for sure now, do. we're going to leave it there. Thanks to all of our guests. Thanks to the producers and engineers. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and Ray Valencia in studio today and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to you for listening. We will talk to you tomorrow.